0: just this incredible story of this man who's been running a very very small sushi shop he can fit eight people i think serves 20 items and that's it for the last i don't know how many years he's had this specific shop but 60 years maybe and you come in and you you get whatever he gives you and you have to reserve it a year out but essentially this is just that's some old sushi man
1: (laughs) Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, everybody, it's Lyd Shaw, your host of Recording Studio Rockstars, the podcast bringing you inside the recording studio. I created this show to introduce you to real-world recording professionals, to listen in on their stories and learn from their musical journeys, so that you can take your recordings to the next level and become a rock star of the recording studio yourself. My guest on the show today is Dave Hagan, head engineer at Dark Horse Recording in Franklin, Tennessee. Dark Horse is one of the longest-lived large studio complexes in the Nashville area, featuring multiple studios and complete artist accommodations amid a stunningly beautiful Tennessee countryside backdrop. Dave works with an extremely diverse client base, including OneRepublic, Reliant K, Matthew West, For King and Country, 10th Avenue North, Ashley Judd, Newsboys, and many others. And not only are his recording credits impressive, but so is his beard, which has been featured on CNN Money and many band documentaries. Dave also helped develop the teaching curriculum for the Dark Horse Institute. He helped build and design several new studios there and has taught many students the skills needed to get started in the music industry. But most importantly, Dave is about to adopt his second child and has the enviable task of struggling to split his time between family and the work that he loves. Please welcome Dave Hagen to Recording Studio Rockstars. Dave, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Sweet, dude. Well, thanks for being here, man. This is a beautiful, beautiful place to be, and I I feel like I should let our listeners know. Typically, we're doing standing podcasts. You know, I, I sort of, by default, do that in the studio. But we're in this beautiful office and it looks like we're on the set of masterpiece theater sitting in big oversized comfy chairs chilling out so um, we may sound more relaxed and sophisticated yeah. on this podcast yeah today. it's a
0: shame they can't hear my
1: pipe <laughs> nice dude well you got any cigars for us or or, <laughs> or fine red wines or anything like that what would we be drinking if we were truly sophisticated
0: well there is a Original Dark Horse red wine up here.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. Dark Horse
0: brand. Yeah, you guys brought a couple of bottles of those to the studio.
1: I remember that. It was beautiful. Well, so Dave, I've done my best to introduce you in my kooky way to the world. Can you tell us more about yourself
0: in your own words? Yeah. So I've been in Nashville coming up on nine years and I don't know, I'm one of thousands who come here every year, it seems like, but I just have been hanging in there and working my way up the chain as far as I can go. You've got a lot of people on your podcast that are further along than I am. So this might be an interesting perspective to get someone who's kind of midway up this path. But, um
1: well, I know you spent a lot of time in the studio making a lot of records. So Absolutely. It kind of doesn't matter where you are on the path when your right. path is as busy as yours is. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now tell us a little bit. You went to school for recording, or how did you get started in this? I did. I actually you, went to a four-year
0: school, in? which is weird for recording. Not a lot of people are doing that. Right. As opposed to like 3.7 is my favorite. Right. <laughs> I didn't do the eight-year path at least. Right. Um, so yeah, I went to a four-year school, and it was not great. Um, I didn't really learn what I needed to know. So I came out to Nashville and just kind of begged for my spot as an intern at different studios and got a few different offers and picked this dark horse because obviously it was the greatest looking place I'd been and um,
1: it is pretty fantastic looking yeah. how would you describe it if you were just telling somebody you must have like the one or two sentence elevator pitch
0: version of it oh man it's like a mountain chateau it's, it's mountain meant to be chateau. a little slice of Colorado out in Tennessee so it's just this big giant wooden castle and you would be like
1: the the mountaineer
0: yeah with a sure. mountain beard
1: yeah so um, for those who are listening which is all of you and you can't see us but Dave and I have complimentary beards his is he's got he's a young generous. man's beard he's got me he's got me beat <laughs> Well, right on Dave. Well, so um, we'd like to kick off the podcast with a little bit of an inspirational quote. Have you got anything to, that you'd like to share with us?
0: Yeah. Um, so I just watched this documentary and it has nothing to do with music, but it has everything to do with um, working towards um, defining your craft, I guess, and improving yourself. Um, and it's it's this documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And it's just this incredible story of this man who's been running... A very, very small sushi shop. He can fit eight people, I think, in this shop. He Serves 20 items, and that's it for the last, I don't know how many years. He's had this specific shop, but 60 years maybe. And you come in, and you you get whatever he gives you and you have to reserve it a year out. But essentially, this is just... That's some old sushi, man. Yeah, Yeah, it probably tastes better right away, but essentially, it's just this man who's been doing one thing, very simply, his entire life. And it was really inspiring for me when I watched it. And one of his quotes was, I do the same thing over and over, improving bit by bit. There's always a yearning to achieve more. I'll continue to climb, trying to reach the top, but no one knows where the top is. And I thought it was so fitting for an artistic field like music, There is no top, there's no perfect song, there's no perfect mix. Everything is just constantly trying to do the same thing better every time.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. And even a moment ago, you tried to give a shout out to, as if there were people at the top somewhere and, and you were on a journey there, but I don't think I've met anybody who said that they've stopped learning or they've stopped trying to improve on on what they do. You know, maybe at some point you just simply stopped doing it, <laughs> yes. but I think that's sage advice, you know, and, and especially the idea of doing one thing over and over again, mm-hmm. really now by one thing that could probably be defined as whatever aspect of recording you're focusing on at that time, whether Absolutely. it's mixing a lot or you're really recording. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously we worked together recently and, and uh, we haven't said this on the podcast yet, so I'll let the rock stars know, but Dave Hagen is a head engineer here at Dark Horse, but he's also one of the main guys over at Dark Horse Institute, which is the school, you know, it's it's part of this that teaches kids how to record and you can go there, you can learn how to make records you know, it's a full, full program, and we teamed up, the Toy Box Studio teamed up with Dark Horse Institute recently to do a live in-studio recording session that is very similar to what I've done at Bonnaroo in the past it's similar to what I've done at, at Stereo Sessions but this time we did it for the Pilgrimage Festival in Franklin, Tennessee, And it was awesome. So we had bands come in every hour and then we would record three songs with them and mix it live through the console, master it right there. But Dave was the man. He set up the whole thing for us. He was basically the wizard of the studio. And when we needed to make something happen, we just turned to Dave and said, Dave, what what do we do with this? But what was my point? I guess my point was that that is an example of something that's pretty specific, but by doing it over and over and over again, even in this one weekend, I think we did 32 finished songs or something like Mm -hmm. that. So, you know, you really begin to hone and work on that craft and figure out what works the best for it. Mm-hmm. So what's an example for you in your world where you feel like you've had that kind of repetition and focus?
0: Yeah, well, I don't know how many times I've turned up a preamp on a snare drum, and every time I... You do just
1: leave it up all the time? <laughs> yeah,
0: every time I'm either happy or I'm not happy, and, and sometimes I can fix it, sometimes I can't, but it's just that same sort of thing over and over again, and I find that there are subtle things that I can change beyond just making it louder, and each of those little things, they're nuanced little tiny changes none of them's a 50% improvement. Everything's a half percent or a 1% improvement that I can make just by walking in there and talking to the drummer for a second or moving a mic a quarter of an inch or a half an inch and all those little things. The more I do them, the more I find that I'm happy at the end of the day. And also this year in particular, I've been doing primarily mixing. I've been tracking sessions, but that only takes, you know, a day or two. And then I've been mixing lots of records that have been coming in. And because I've been able to sort of focus on specifically that aspect of what I do, because before now I've been doing more tracking and less mixing. So because I've been able to focus and just do sit in the same room every day and try to make things sound as awesome as I can. And because of the client base we have, which is pretty diverse, you know, everything from I just finished a jazz Christmas record to today I printed a mix that was pretty heavy pop rock thing, just complete opposite end of the spectrum in terms of technique and all that, but it's still a snare drum that I turned a preamp up on and had to figure out how to tweak that to make it perfect. Before we started this, we were chatting about mixing. And you were talking about
1: a situation that you found yourself in where there was a record it was being mixed by a few a few different people. You were one mm-hmm. of those people, and the other guys we were like, "These guys are really good." You yeah. Know? So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that experience of being up against somebody else's work that you really think is fantastic, and how you approach that, how you deal with that. And one of the reasons I asked that is I think a lot of you know our listeners are going to certainly be faced with you know I'm trying to record something. We had a guest on recently, um, Graham Cochran, and he quoted mm-hmm. Ira Glass on the show. It was and awesome it, quote. I yeah, it's a great quote. quote, isn't
0: it? And that's that's exactly how I've phrased it to a lot of people. My thought process on that whole thing. Perfect.
1: Yeah. So in that talks about the body of work and continuing to work on stuff uh, mm-hmm. until you
0: get it. And his taste exceeding his ability. That's what.
1: I, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's what my where my train of thought was going with that was that when you know your taste is already there, like your taste is at that level of that song by somebody else that sounds so good, mm-hmm. like your brain is there already, mm-hmm. but you're trying to get your skills up to there. So you want to talk a little bit about you know how do you deal with that? when you're working on a mix, for example, or you know anything else. I mean, when you're tweaking the snare drum, obviously, in your mind, you know what a great snare drum sounds like. Right. and So if it doesn't come out of the speaker's sound in that way, you're making adjustments.
0: Right. And then also, I have to imagine that there's also going to be lots of other mics picking up that same drum, and they all change everything. So with projects where I know that I'm kind of competing against, not competing directly, but sort of my mixes are going to be placed up against people who've been doing this for 30 years or 40 years and are just... Those old guys. Yeah. Just <laughs> incredibly more experienced and their body of work is so much larger than mine. It's terrifying at first. And then I realized that this whole career of mine is a learning process. And I've had that exact thought where my taste, I know that their stuff sounds, their mixes are going to sound fantastic. And I know that mine could, and then I just have to mentally work through the, fact that okay i can get it there and how do i accomplish that
1: well interesting too because in that situation you guys are dealing with um if not the same tracks you're dealing with similar tracks or possibly yeah from the same tracking session yeah. so it's not the source material that's that's right. changing right <laughs> sorry it's, dude yeah right
0: <laughs> Yeah, technique and style and and their individual thought process on the whole thing. So it was great for me to really put myself to the test. And fortunately, I got the client to send me some of their early versions. Smart move. And I got, you know, tactfully like, oh man, I'd love to hear that. That'd be great. And of course I'm pulling it up immediately and breaking it down and trying to figure out what I like and what I don't like about their style. That was a big help because it gave me some directions that I did like. And I was like, oh, I really need to pull that. And I need to start doing some of this. And a lot of it was just simple. stuff. Same songs or the other songs from the record? Different songs on the same record. So I tracked all the stuff except for there was a 30 piece orchestra. So they had approached my tracks a little bit differently than I had with a fresh perspective and a little different end goal in terms of the orchestra and making that massive thing fit with full band tracking and so they were so how many to, tracks did you have, did just tons of uh, one of them was 115 120 something like that <laughs> i think
1: i'd still be counting the tracks now yeah, they were 119
0: 12 or 15 layers of percussion going at once and a full drum kit and wow horn section and orchestra and everything so yeah it was great you know i could kind of steal the stuff from them that was working great even just simple things like the way they panned the the band out was different than how i was doing it and i thought oh man i can hear the orchestra so much bigger now and because i'd tracked it as a band project first in my head it was still a rock band almost and then i heard a better version and i was like oh great now I know
1: what to do. A couple of comments to that. One is this idea of when you approach mixing, hitting it from a, a different angle. So, for example, if you start with the drums and you build up the band, and then you get to the end of a mix and you try and get the vocal in there, and all of a sudden you're frustrated because you can't get the vocal to sit right, you know. Then one day you learn, you're like, oh, what happens if I start with the vocal first and then I go backwards towards the drums, you know? And I don't know if that's what people are calling top-down mixing, but it might be. Uh, and the, you know, the idea of like starting with a different element, and that's what you're describing right there. You start. Initially with the band filling up the whole picture, and then was like, okay, how do I fit a thirty-piece orchestra in there? Yeah. And maybe you know you you look at it again from the perspective of, hey, this orchestra is really important. Now let's fit the band in there. And then the other point that I was going to make is that's my number one favorite cheat trick for mixing is just to ask a client for the rough mixes too. Yeah, oh yeah, send me the roughs. let me check them out. It's the easiest way to put them up and then just give yourself a measurement of make sure you beat the rough, you know? So I'm not saying that's setting your sights super duper high, but you know, you set your sights as high as putting in a reference track, bringing in somebody's mix that you knew sounded fantastic. And that shows you where the bar is, you know? It's like you can see the top of the
0: mountain there. And that was a project where it wasn't band project for five months and then they added an orchestra and so in my mind i'm still hearing these even the rough mixes sounded awesome you know big band and band stuff and then i'd try to just turn up an orchestra a little bit around that and it didn't work Surprised? i've done that
1: i definitely found myself trying to sneak in a string ensemble and then inevitably it's like turn it down turn it down turn it down until you can it just sort of blends but and that's always tricky you know it's not true that always the producer has a clear vision for why and how the strings or the orchestra do actually fit in this band track. Right. Sometimes they do. If you're lucky to be working with somebody that's that brilliant, they got it all sorted out. Well, so um, Dave, share with us uh, an important failure for you. Some, some time where you, you know, it really just didn't work out uh, and turned out to be a great lesson for you.
0: I feel like one of the kind of defining moments in my work ethic towards recording was a session that I had with an unnamed engineer, and I was assisting, and this engineer was incredible, really great engineer, and very, very picky about everything, which he should be. And I was getting a little cocky, I think, and I was the hotshot assistant who knew what, what I was doing, and I knew the room. Which you should be. Yeah, which I should be. <laughs> no, except kidding. that day. Yeah, except that day. <laughs> and right? I started. I decided to write a list of problems, and a lot of them were not my problems, you know, cable goes bad or a piece of gear goes bad or whatever and that's the sort of thing that just happens in studios but i started writing a list of problems and i ended up with two pages of double-spaced problems just listed out and i thought holy crap that was rough and at the end of two days i had i think gotten everything kind of whipped into shape and then we were running smoothly the whole back half of the second day was great but that first day was it was a hell day you know i was just struggling to keep up and it taught me a little bit of patience because I know that there are lots of times when you're in a session and things are just not going, they're falling apart. I've seen people break down under those circumstances and just are incapable of bringing the session back out of the mud. And so that's one of the things that I've always tried to be just as cool as I can be under pressure. The client doesn't need to know that the preamp didn't work. The client needs to know that it's going to take one more minute and then we'll have an awesome sound for them. So that was one of those kind of experiences where I was like, man, this is just, this can't happen again. And so f- ever since then, I'm just incredibly picky about getting everything fully ready for a session whenever that's a possibility and making the clients just not ever know that there's any work going into it. It's just an easy day. They walk in, they sing a little bit, and they walk back out.
1: You and I definitely went through some of that at pilgrimage. You know, that was a-
0: That's uh, why quite I said when a, st- I can.
1: <laughs> yes, it was a stressful start for sure. Um, you know, and again, we were faced probably at many different opportunities to crash and burn. Mm -hmm. But did we? No, we didn't. Because I was working with the great Dave Hagan. So yeah, I totally understand that. And I think that getting prepared for a session is great. You know, I want to talk about preparation. I've got notes right in front of me for this interview. You know, it's preparation helps a lot. And I think repeatedly doing things helps you learn how to prepare for things. And it helps you start dialing it down to where you're getting rid of all the unnecessaries um i'll use I'll stick to this analogy. My notes in front of me when I did a first podcast were probably ten pages of scattered notes all over, and I'm trying to figure out what to do. Even my questions were long and, and, and wordy, and now they're down to just a few words where it's like a code for what needs to happen. And I know in the studio, if I'm gonna do a tracking session, I think you know the first times I would do it, I would be sweating bullets the night before, before going into the studio and then go in and show up, and then the band's there, and then it's like, okay, what should we do, you know? And then start miking things up. Four hours later and the right. band's, you know, they're losing interest, and I'm still trying to get sounds on a session. That's a great way to learn how to get yourself dialed in, you know, if you can come in the night before and get an input list from your producer, from the engineer, or or if you can create one yourself for your own assistant makes such a difference.
0: Yeah, I've always found that I have these two halves of my brain and as an engineer I have this very technical side and I have these tools that I can use and I can swing this hammer or compressor or whatever. I can, I can use these tools to create things but that side of my brain is really terrible at music. And the other side of my brain, this creative side, is much better at the music thing, but I can't function in the technical world when I'm trying to think that way. Or if I try to suddenly solve a technical problem while I'm trying to be creative and mixing in particular, but also tracking or producing or whatever it is, my brain just kind of never does as good at either task. So I've found that by kind of getting all the technical prep stuff out of the way, especially with a mix, I can then just spend the last little bit just being fully as much as possible creative and trying to kind of instinctually do the job.
1: Yeah. I feel like the example that comes up for me a lot, and again, I'm going to say for a lot of listeners would be dealing with your DAW on your computer and you're trying to compose music and you go to do something and next thing you know you don't know how to make the little line go across the screen and hear the sound come through your headphones or whatever and it's so frustrating and it gets it can be such a vibe
0: killer there is no good music in those menus you
1: know you know what the best solution for that is 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 get drunk and then try it, <laughs> it was first time i was trying to learn how to use ableton live which is a super cool program yeah. for you know electronic music and for recording And I just couldn't wrap my brain around it. And then one night I was hanging out with a buddy of mine and we were having a couple of beers and he was just sort of like, do this, make it do that, do this. And all of a sudden I was like, my hands were just going and I figured it out. So that's probably not very good advice for anybody listening, (laughs) but you, you could try it. You might find that it's easier that way. I don't know. All right, so um, how about sharing with us, Dave, a great moment of success for you? Something where um, you know it felt like a real hit moment for you. Since we were talking about it, other than working with me at Polygram, other than
0: the experience <laughs> of meeting and working with Lid Shaw. I mean, since we were talking about it, I guess this last record that I just finished mixing. When I got done with it, I had my five songs on this record, and I played them back, and I was super pumped about it. I just loved it. I was a big fan, and I listened to my roughs, which I really liked, with the band, no orchestra, and they felt great. And I listened to mine, and I beat it. <laughs> and it had an orchestra. and It was this great sound that I was really proud. Of. that's
1: awesome and i would say that would be a major accomplishment and you know a worthy end goal for any of us along the way is to finish every project we're doing right. the next one feeling like we just nailed it and, and it's also just really enjoyable it's like when you're working on music that just feels good and every accomplishment along the way just feels like you you've really gone somewhere you wanted to go that's a good mm-hmm. feeling well right on so now tell us something you're excited about right now i guess that that was right now wasn't it yeah. but, but uh, you also talked about getting some new things uh, wired up and stuff like that what's 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 exciting for you going on right now in in your world at Dark Horse and at Dark Horse Institute?
0: Yeah, well, coming up, I'm going to be teaching a class. We have a 17-week class, so I'm going to be teaching my first one this year. This whole year, I've been kind of busy working in engineering mostly, so I haven't taught any of these classes. But this one, I'll be teaching, and so that's always a good experience for me, especially with some of the classes. You know, it just... I get to see what I do from a fresh perspective every time. And it's a lot of fun to try to vocalize and figure out how to say these random things that I don't know how to say. These thoughts about music that I just think and do when I'm engineering. It's fun to get to try to do that for a class, try to verbalize that.
1: Yeah, it really starts to help you figure out exactly what it is that you do. Yeah. Take a good close look at yourself. It certainly helps me. Are you a strict teacher? Yeah, are you like, Um, I'm stricter than some. To the principal's Uh, office or anything like that? I
0: haven't done that. But I have, I really want them, you know, this, this is a very competitive field. So I'm, I'm fairly strict and pretty, pretty uh, demanding of them because that's, that's the way things are going to be yeah, as soon I like as they to. get out of there.
1: I like to um, interact with my interns as being lovingly ruthless. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know?
0: Yeah. I've also got, We're at the school, we're also kind of growing, we're expanding. So I'm building some stuff. I love woodworking and I've built some really fun keyboard stands for over there that are like these rolling wooden things they there, a little bit of furniture. And then we've got a whole bunch of patch bays to solder up. And as crazy as it sounds, I love that stuff.
1: Let's talk about that. Cause you know, I get a lot of new students, interns, you know, they're fascinated by that, but they really don't have experience. Tell us what is, what do you do to build a patch bay? Let's get specific for a second.
0: Well, at the moment I'm just drawing so I've got a layout, and I've drawn this out, and I've been ordering the right patch bays.
1: What is a patch bay? Let's start okay. with that.
0: So a patch bay is a convenient way to get signal from point A to point B with, throughout the studio, because we've got gears spread over, especially in our big room here at Dark Horse, we've got gear spread over I don't know thirty feet from one side to the other, and we have microphone panels throughout the building. We have like a hundred mic lines, mic cables run throughout the entire building, so you can record drums from downstairs or upstairs, and it will all funnel into the patch bay in the control room. Awesome, and then the patch bay is like it looks like an old row of telephone connections, right? Absolutely, uh, I, we hire Gladys to come in <laughs> and connect everything. Um, We we have to spin a little crank and be like, Gladys, connect the 1073 to the 1176.
1: In the upstairs lounge. Yes. So um, what are the connectors? Are you using TT or some other kind?
0: Yeah, we have their TT, which actually stands for tiny telephone, because it it is the same format as they used for phones. They're bigger than a headphone jack, smaller than a guitar cable.
1: Right. And for anybody, for listeners, again, the TT has three connections on it. Mm-hmm. So it can be a lot of things, but it's a tip ring sleeve connector. You might see that on some of your guitar cables that have the funny end on it if they turn out to be a TRS cable. And there's one place that you will always find one of those. And I always try and quiz my interns on this. And it's the end of your headphone cable. You know, mm-hmm. people don't realize they're sitting on one of those all the time,
0: Yeah, TRS. Unless you have an iPhone. Unless
1: you have an iPhone, then you've got four four connectors on it, yeah.
0: Yeah, so this TT cable, it just can go from any hole in this patch bay to any other hole, which will connect either the output of something or the input of something. So the signal comes out of the microphone, goes into an amplifier to turn it up, goes out of the amplifier, into Pro Tools, and we record it.
1: Yeah, and so in the world of software, some of you might be using Reason, for example. And if you've ever hit the tab key and you flip the whole rack of gear around, you see all the dangling cables. That's what it is in real world. The guts. The guts, the guts. All right, so you're going to build this giant patch bay. Tell us a little bit about the planning stage of doing that. So you've got all kinds of equipment all over the place, and somehow it has to make sense on the patch bay. Is it like five connection points on the patch bay?
0: Maybe seven. No, (laughs) we have this new room that we're doing as a project studio. We're doing three of these project studios. So we're kind of trying to set it up as a display almost for all these students that are going to be going out and trying to set up their own space and don't want to spend $500,000 getting a control room like we have at the studio here you don't have to spend that money so we're trying to set up a more realistic version of a home studio or small project studio so we have a toft console which is a small console that's in the same format essentially as a trident console which is our main console at the studio here and it's got all sorts of connections in and out of that thing so I figured it out the patch bay is about four feet away from the console I need 50 feet of 16 channel snake to connect it all to the patch bay. (laughs) So whatever that ends up being, and that's not even
1: the outboard gear. That's just console into other gear.
0: That's just console into the patch bay. So we have three patch bays. 144 points on one, 96 on the other two. I didn't do the math on it because I didn't want to. But each of those points will have three wires to solder. So there's a whole lot of wire stripping and shrink wrap and soldering in my near future.
1: Yeah. So each wire that's going to a patch point has three connections on it. It's got, maybe it's a red and a black and then the the bare silver and the red might be the positive signal, the black might be the negative signal and the bare silver would be the ground connection, right? Those three I wires know we're getting real techie connect. here on, on yeah. Recording Studio Rockstars, but, you know, eventually we got to get smart about what's going on with the, with the gear, you know, I think. Now, the thing that most people don't know about patch bays is how beautiful and elegant they can look on the backside if they're mm-hmm. done well.
0: Absolutely. I, I love something that's been straightened up just right. So there will be a few hundred zip ties in a one foot by 19 inch area holding all these cables in there and holding it all, you know, just right so that it, everything when you walk around the desk looks just as cool as it does when you walk in front of it.
1: Yeah, it looks all neat and lo- they call it a loom because it mm-hmm. looks like it's sort of, I guess it looks like woven. fabric woven together. Yeah. Um, and then how long does it take you to solder to prep all these wires and solder them to the backside of a patch bay well they, i'm they, hoping
0: to have a little help I've had a lot of students that are trying to get in on this so we'll be prepping which is like shrink wrapping stripping the cables tending them getting a little bits of solder on the ends of the wires so that i'm guessing is going to take a day or two
1: yeah i was going to say it could easily take a full day Just and, to and then the i'm room.
0: guessing probably a day a full day just to do one room
1: yeah wow that's great well that's cool man so um let's uh go from there to the jam session i think about time for us to hit the jam session which is where i give you a series of kind of quick questions and you can just kind of fire back your answers at me
0: or you can elaborate whatever you want to do okay jam those questions in my face all right man
1: Hey everybody, it's Lyd Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the track x and you get downloadable multi-tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi-track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit bass and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter and it's off my instrumental record Skadouche and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text mixmaster Bundle to 33444 and I'll send it directly to your email. again that's mix master Bundle with no space to 33444 or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com Enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. So we're going into the jam session now. I'm here with Dave Hagan. And uh, welcome, Dave. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars. So I'm going to hit you up with the first question here.
0: Tell us, when you were starting out, man, tell us about something that was holding you back. I couldn't get people in front of my microphones. (laughs) That's the key to recording, is having something to record. So... I did a lot of recording myself, um, but I'm not very good as a musician. That's why I'm an engineer. I sit on the other side of the glass. Um, so the the hardest thing for me was always just finding people to record and um, finding good musicians and good instruments to record is is really key to getting a good sound. Don't let anybody on uh, any of these web forums tell you otherwise. The musician and the, the music has to be good. And I, so for me... Th- the hardest thing to prove to myself that I knew what I was doing or that I could put out a good product was finding something really solid to record.
1: So, you started out with some sort of setup of your own, but
0: yeah, you're I just, just got like, Pro Tools and a computer go and you. An I M-box love you guys,
1: you're a great band. Can I record you?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, did a lot of you know going to shows, talking to bands, offering them free recording time in exchange for just me being able to use their stuff in my portfolio and kind of use them as my guinea pigs to prove to myself that I knew what I was doing. So, let didn't. me
1: let me ask you about that because I, I still remember that feeling and I've heard the discussion so many times, you know, there's this suggestion of like, go meet the bands, go to the club, you know, should I have business cards? Should I like mm-hmm. hand out business cards? You know, what's that worth? You know, you offer up, you can record somebody for free. What's your experience running into people and how they react to something that's being offered for free and maybe the best way is to deal with it?
0: Well, often free means it's worth nothing. And so there's a good chance that if you're starting to offer your work up for free, people will assume you're no good and they'd rather spend money someplace and have a good product because their time is valuable. So, I didn't I don't know that I ever actually got anybody to do the free thing or if I did it was just buddies of mine or something but at the same token you can't charge what the real working professionals are charging when you're first starting out so there was always this kind of fine line I wanted to walk between not trying to undercut the people who are actually doing all the work
1: with your free worthless work free,
0: <laughs> free bad work which usually would distance itself and they would know that it wasn't an undercut but you have to be careful advertising for something like that because that can really distance you from all the other professionals in your career and that's not a good thing.
1: Well so one thought that comes to mind for me is uh you can always have a conversation with somebody where you say, This is what I do and this is what I typically charge for it, but I love your music so much and your band is so awesome, I would love to just record you guys. Yeah. That sometimes can go a little ways. Yeah. You know, if absolutely. they really think you you like their music a lot. Or if you offer to pay them to record the music, (laughs) you
0: could try that one too. I'm sure that would work. I've always found that it's better for me to over-deliver on whatever it is that I'm promising. So I I always tried to avoid this whole used car salesman approach to recording, man, I'm going to make you the best sounding record you've ever heard. And you're going to sound amazing. If I was realistic with them and let them know, know what stage I was at, and I'm like, man, I'm building my portfolio. I'm doing my best. And I think I can give you a really worthwhile product for X amount of not very many dollars. And they came in and they did it and they'd be happy and they'd be totally ready to come back for that same price. It was absolutely worth it. And then that's how you get a network. That's how you make friends with a band and you make friends with their friends and their friends. And that's the whole freelancing thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's word of mouth, word of mouth networking for sure. All right. So um, Dave, share with us some of the best advice that you remember receiving.
0: Well, early on when I was you know, my, my early attempts at mixing, the best advice I got, this may be where a lot of you guys are at, is just don't do so much. If it's a great instrument, it will sound great with almost nothing done to it. You know, a lot of times I can just turn up the preamp on the snare drum and it sounds pretty dang good. When I find myself trying to crank an EQ to make a snare drum sound good, it's never going to sound good. And definitely not like that. It can sound successfully, it can create music even if it doesn't sound perfect, but when you start overdoing your compression, overdoing your EQ and reverb and all these little tricks That you've learned how to automate a pan back and forth that stuff never to me seemed to be very successful and few people helped me find the error of my ways when i was doing so the
1: tricky stuff just ended
0: up sounding tricky in the end absolutely yeah and it drew attention to the fact that i was trying to make something bad sound awesome
1: (laughs) well you know also i that might well i don't know how that applies in the world of edm electronic dance music Mm -hmm. because i think you're you're meant to manipulate a little little bit bit more you know presentation absolutely for, yeah, different presentation. Here we are at Masterpiece Theater, <laughs> yeah. rock stars. Presentation. <laughs> so um, I, w- I wanted to comment on that too, because it reminded me of a movie, a documentary. It was made by the Grammys and I'm kicking myself for not remembering the name, but I will put it in the show notes. And they followed four different songwriters and DJs and paired them up with four different bands. Um, one of them was down in New Orleans, and if I'm remembering his name right, the drummer from The Meters is Zigaboo, is that right? The band The Meters, you know, the funkiest band on the planet that's ever been, just about. Sorry to all other funk bands out there, <laughs> that's just my feeling about it. Um, and he's got this really distinctive, funky drum sound that's just so spot on. And he was in the in the documentary, and they he was in the room, and he sits down as a drum kit, he shows up, and he's like, he's checking it out, and he's just hitting the drums. And all it was was the microphone that was on the camera for the for the documentary and he played it for like you know a few bars and it sounded exactly right you know mm-hmm. it sounded exactly like the right drums just mm-hmm. like him just like the way it was supposed to be so just to reiterate that point of you know if you've got the right drummer or the right musician and it's coming out of the instrument, that's where the sound comes from. Especially when I've done the Hay Bale Studio and, you know, we did the Pilgrimage, we're using the same mics through the same mic pre's and the same setup, same mic preamp settings just about. And one band sits down and sounds one way and another band sits down and sounds completely different. And there are times where I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, wow, you know, i am got to be the worst engineer in the world. Like, I cannot, I am just a suck at this because I can't get it to sound good and then the next band comes in and I sound like the most amazing mixer I've ever heard you know and it's just eventually enough of those and I just realize it's not me yeah <laughs> at least I keep telling
0: myself that <laughs> yeah but, you absolutely
1: know, we're just trying to be a conduit you know for all that good yeah. music
0: yeah the job is to capture and recreate it not to create it, usually. At least in in what I'm doing here, usually. Unless
1: you're a DJ? (laughs) Unless you're a
0: DJ or EDM, then it's lending of artist and engineer and all that stuff.
1: All right, so Dave, give us now a recording tip, hack
0: or secret sauce. Something that we could use right now. Oh man. Oh, parallel compression? No, I'm just kidding. You can read all about it. (laughs) Um, My favorite thing recently has been this kind of gimmick that I came up with. I hear a lot of people talk about their best lo-fi approach and they're always trying to get that telephone sound so I just went out and got a telephone and wired it up, and we have a little box that will connect it in just like a DI for a guitar. Connects it in and load that up underneath the drums in just the right way, and I end up using it on almost all of my tracks. And you know, a chunk of the time, it just gets muted and deleted. And I was like, why did I do that? But quite often, I find that that actual telephone, the element in it, which is very much like a copper phone, if you've heard of that.
1: Right. They have have like grains in it or something, right? Yeah.
0: It's a very interesting element. It's not dynamic at all, and it's absolutely trashy. But it gives me this perfect brightness on the snare that doesn't capture almost any symbols. somehow. It captures drum, and that's it, because those are the loud things. So anyway, it's a really cool thing that I've been loving lately on my tracking sessions. That's cool.
1: That's cool. and then do you sometimes blend that in with the other mics? And oh, or of course it's sort of like you cut to that sound for a for a special tag. No, it of actually
0: it almost becomes sort of my snare bottom mic on a lot of times. It gives me that texture and the grit of the snare, but without the individual wires almost, you know, it, it's a it's just a crunch that layers on top of the drum kit and I can get a real thick kit sound without so much room and so much size. That's cool. Uh, Is there a favorite spot where it usually ends up? Uh, I end up with it often kind of under the rack tom down on the floor. I just wrap it in a towel. It's got to be a, I can't tell you how many wraps, but I wrap it it in a hand towel and I'll set it right up next to the kick drum. A genuine Abbey Road tea towel? Of course. Yes. So it lives kind of next to the kick drum underneath the rack tom, kind of underneath the snare area. And it quite often is a really cool addition to a track.
1: Nice. So, and I think the takeaway for that too is because maybe not everybody has the same telephone, but don't. Be afraid to take something really unusual or bizarre like that and just throw it into the mix and see what happens. Find a sweet spot for it.
0: And I've ruined so many other <laughs> mono mics trying to come up with a cool solution that I like. And I've always been that guy who I'll give you clean drum recordings because a lot of people just come here and they track and then they leave. And I'll give you your clean drum recordings, but I'm going to give you something fun to go along with it. It's like you're signing the tracks. You know? Absolutely, A little extra there's, mic is your, your clean signature. recording, and then here's the Dave Hagen flare. The <laughs> Dave Hagan
1: flare, I love it, man. Um, is that what you do to your beard in the mornings? So you like wind mm-hmm. it out there get the get yep. the flare going. So, all right. So now tell us a favorite hardware tool for the studio, something you really like to have making records.
0: Man, I've got a couple of mics here that I find myself using on pretty much every project. And it's sort of my desert island mic. And it's my absolute favorite piano mic, acoustic guitar mic, wins at least half of the time on vocal shootouts. And it's this Gefell M71. So Gefell is the East German side of Neumann. They were the same company. They had all the same same patents. of uh, Gefell just manufactured for Neumann. And then they put this wall right in the middle of the country. Gefell couldn't sell to the rest of the world. Neumann took advantage. They got a pretty sweet deal. They made some good stuff and they made a lot of money. And Gefell kind of got stuck over there. So when the wall came down, they started selling internationally. And so they're the same quality on most of the mics. Same sort of high level of quality, but for a lot less money. And we found these M71s, which have the same capsule as a U87, but it's just on a much uglier body, and so they aren't nearly as popular. But to me, they sound better on most things, and it's it's just a really great all-around mic.
1: That's good, man. Thank goodness the Walgafell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everybody. That
0: was my dad coming through there. All right, so now
1: give us a favorite software tool, something you really like using that's inside
0: the computer. I just got this new plugin, and I've used it on a couple of projects now, and I absolutely love it, and it's $30. It's a
1: good price, by the way.
0: It's a good price. And it, I've been using it and replacing several hundred dollar plugins and trying it out, and I'm finding myself going back to this $30 plugin over and over again. Helm is the company, and MJUC. It's this kind of tube compressor modeling plugin, and it just sounds fantastic. It's really flexible and I've been using it all over the place. It's my go-to kick compressor right now.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to have to go check that out. I just recently got the Clang Helm meters. They have these great VU meter plugins. Mm -hmm. Do you know if that one comes in AAX also for Pro Tools? It does. Sweet. All right, good tip. And there's a free version
0: if you want to try it out.
1: All right, Groovy. And of course, as always, Rockstars, we will have all of these links in the show notes so you can go... Click on it right there. And um, don't forget that sometimes you can get to the show notes just by looking at your iPhone, the podcast display where the logo is, and you just tap on that and it zips up and there's all the show notes right there and you can click right through. All right. So next up, give us a, a good resource, Dave, for the business side of what you do.
0: Well. Um, currently I am a staff engineer at a studio. So that part of my stress is eased by being full time at a studio. Maybe Uh, that's the tip right there. (laughs) So, um, you know, I've, I've done the freelance thing and I've done the studio thing. The freelance thing has a lot of benefits. The studio thing has a lot of benefits too. So my advice for business is to talk to somebody who knows more than me. Probably. I always just kind of show up and I try to do my best. And I never really had much expertise in that area, I suppose. But that's
1: good. I think that's great advice because that advice applies to anybody anywhere, which is, and I've learned this, it took me a while, but I learned to not look to all the other engineers and producers for advice about business. I did on some level, but they don't always know, you know, And, and so I learned to start looking outside of the studio for advice on business. I learned to take a lot of tips from people in totally different forms of business, ways to invoice, when and how to invoice, how to have contracts with people. Just just look around, look around, you know. One of the things that I always thought was interesting was that we go into this world of making records, and still to this day, there's a lot of business interaction that says for some reason we should go in and you know do work you work in the studio you make a record and then you invoice somebody and I know people I have conversations with them all the time and they talk about I'm still waiting 30 days, 60 days, 90 days for some invoice to get paid. You know, I thought about that and I was like, I guess with a credit card you get that, but you don't walk out of Walmart with the TV and not pay for it. You know what I mean? So I don't know why um, anybody who's making a record should feel compelled to do that either. Right. So there's my tip. Yeah, it's (laughs) happened to me. I think nine months is my record. Oh, nine months waiting for a check for a to check. come up? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, you could buy yourself a new watch with it by the time it comes Yeah, up. right. Get yourself a calendar. I'd written it off. All right. So um, the last couple of questions here. This one is sort of hypothetical, imaginary. You brought up the desert island scenario, mm-hmm. which I never really understood because if you're on a desert island, who are you making records for? Yeah. <laughs> who's listening? How are you getting power anyway? Right. That's a whole other topic. So um, if you were hypothetically dropped into a strange land, desert island somewhere, mm-hmm. And you could only take a simple setup to record. What would you take with you? How would you find people to record? And then more importantly, too, starting out, how would you make ends meet so that you could continue to do this and not, you know, have Mm -hmm. to move back to your parents' house?
0: Right. Well, I'll say this. The key to being successful in the music industry is just outlasting a whole lot of other people. Because, I mean, this is the music industry. Like, this is what you do instead of getting a real job. There's a lot of people that want to get out here and do this. And so most of them will realize that this is also hard work and will give up on it in a very short amount of time. So wherever you are, if you're persistent about it, you've got a really good shot of making that work. In terms of what I would want on a personal setup, actually, Lidge, you've got it. I've got <laughs> you've, it sitting right you've here got, right now, right? You've got it right here. you just walked in with a suitcase and you've got eight inputs and that's enough to cut a drum kit. You've got a laptop and a set of headphones and a couple of mics and you can make any record you want like that. You can show up in any house with some blankets and some creative approaches to getting good sounds you can make cool records anywhere you want some of the best records in the world were cut in just in a rented house you just show up and you can get that led zeppelin sound in your living room yeah maybe if you got a really big living room
1: exile on main street was made in a french chateau so Mm -hmm. it was a pretty nice rented house right it was a nice house (laughs) but i think they were using like you know vintage neumann u67s in the basement You're ruining my example, Lyd. Sorry about that, dude. (laughs) No, but seriously, I might as well describe what we're using right now. So I have the M-Audio 2626. It's a firewire connector, so that's beginning to get outdated at this point. I don't Mm -hmm. know, we're getting into the world of thunderbolts and USBs. But that has eight mic preamps on it, and it also has something that I think is kind of key. It actually has two headphone outputs, and the reason I think that's so important it's because that means you and another human being can both listen to music together. And when you put two human beings into the same room making music, all of a sudden you really start to have something happen. Mm-hmm. You, know? you, get, you get two people communicating musically. And to me, that's the essence of where music comes from. That's the essence of great records mm-hmm. is you always have to have people you know, playing and interacting. It's a communication. Absolutely. And then, of course, I've got a MacBook Pro, and I'm using Pro Tools to record into, and then a pair of headphones and a couple of mics on stands. And these two mics that we're using for our voice right now are the Mic Tech PM9s. So these are dynamic mics, and they're just similar to SM58s and 57s. I think they have a really nice EQ curve on them. Great company. Great Mike company right here out of Nashville, Tennessee, too. Mike Ketchell, great guy.
0: For the next step up, I'll say this. For the school we've got, we're building these project studios to be sort of a showcase of exactly what you're describing. What do you do when you want to just set up a room, when you want to have a studio that doesn't cost you you know, more than a house? So what we bought for those is are these Apollo units. And Apollo UAD Apollo 16s are what we bought. You can get away with an 8 and still cut a and We got the 16, and we got a TOFT console, a TOFT ATB 16. So there's 16 preamps, EQ, routing for days, headphones, and my interface all comes with it and that's like a complete setup and it would sound killer.
1: That's pretty awesome. So anybody who's listening to this, if you want to go learn how to record records and also learn how to leave your schooling with a simple, awesome setup, come on down to Franklin, Tennessee. (laughs) Come on down. Come on down. Come on down to Dark Horse. So, um, all right, Dave, here's the last um, question here. Oh, well, let me ask you this too, so we didn't get to it. Um, Making ends meet. I feel like that's an important part of the equation because starting out, it's one thing to not spend a lot of money on your gear, but you're still Mm going to have to pay your rent and eat some food and, and you know keep your car running.
0: Yeah absolutely. When I was starting out I did exactly what probably most of you guys are going to have to do. I had to pay all those bills on my own and I had to keep my foot in the door in the recording industry. If you're not showing up every day to someplace where music is being made there's not a chance that you will grow your career from that. So what I did was I just found jobs that I could do in the time when I wasn't in the studio and that involved Early mornings or late nights, or just a job that was flexible enough that I could just take off at a moment's notice. And I'd try to make it my personal goal was just that I would never turn down a session. Anything that I could get in on, I was going to get in on. If that involved me finding another job the next week, I was going to try to do that. I can remember one week, one of my most enjoyable weeks as an assistant was working on this great record with Craig Alvin, who I saw you were talking to, trying to get on the podcast. And he was engineering this record for Bronze Radio Return, and I was just hanging out. I was assisting, but mostly I was just hanging out. And so they were going till 3 in the morning, and I was working starting at 4 in the morning. And so I was doing a loading crew at Lowe's, loading up boxes and moving stuff onto shelves. And then I'd come out and jump into the studio in the early afternoon, go till wee hours, go home. Some nights I got three or four hours of sleep and it was awesome. It was a great week. It was just something about being where good music was being made in a really cool creative environment with great people working on it. It was all the energy I needed there. And I just tried to have a good attitude about the work hours that I was there. And I paid my bills and I got to be where the music was.
1: The other thing is, you know, when you're at a young age, what better time in your life to put that kind of hustle into what you're doing and and make it work because it does get harder to do later on, you know? So, all right. So here's, here's the uh, real uh, icing on the cake question for you, Dave, Mr. Dave Hagan. Can you tell our rock stars, our, our listeners, what is the single most important thing to do to become a rock star of the recording studio?
0: Just keep doing it. And I kind of mentioned this earlier, the place that I see most people fail at becoming a rock star is just, they're just stopping. They'll go for a couple of years and be like, well, guess that's not for me. I only made a couple of cool records. I only had a lot of fun, but I didn't make any money. And that's the exact moment. That's that tipping point where if they had pushed on for another year or two, they would suddenly be finding themselves more and more, and increasingly picking up momentum into getting a lot of work and getting better work, more more rewarding musical endeavors. You know, better projects that are just more interesting.
1: Yeah, it's that Ira Glass quote again. Exactly, you, know, it's, you it's have that. to go through the long journey of creating that large body of work to mm-hmm. finally. And there's a lot of it that's going to be disappointing
0: goal. to you. Your own work or your contribution to the work is going to be not what you hoped it would be. And that's incredibly frustrating. I've I still feel that when I do projects and I'm just like, man, this was my baby and I dropped it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Sorry. Man. Sorry. Figured. We're metaphor. talking. metaphor. I haven't of course. signed the papers yet on this adoption. <laughs> so
1: Um Right on, Dave. Well, um, congratulations on your new family progress or what's the what's the right term for it? But just like these great things that are yeah. ha- happening in, in you. your family world. I don't know if you, you know, care to comment on what it is to balance family life with with work and music and recording and stuff. Obviously, it's something you're doing after you've invested quite a bit of time into recording. It is probably the ultimate measure of success to be able to uh, balance a, a wonderful family life mm-hmm. with your time in the studio, too.
0: Yeah, it's that's one of those things that... It is tough. This is a really fun job and I am very, very committed to my work. So I will push as hard as my body can handle it to get a record finished and make it awesome. At the same time, I have a really cool family at home that very much likes me to be there and help out there, especially my wife, likes it when I'm there to help. And that's both awesome and a responsibility, just like my work is. So finding that fine line is, I don't know, I'll let you know when I find it. (laughs) But uh, it was sort of like, My example earlier, when I was working mornings and running this session in the evenings, somehow the energy just shows up. As soon as I started challenging myself, I realized that was like, oh, man, I've just been sitting around not doing anything. I have the potential to do way more than I've been doing. So every time I find myself challenged with work and then coming home and having energy to wrestle with a couple of kids jumping and pulling my hair and my beard, it's there like somehow.
1: Yeah, well, it sounds like your heart's in it. So when your heart's in it, you just have the energy. You just find it. Absolutely. You're just motivated to keep doing the next thing. Right on, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstars. It's been awesome to have you on this podcast. What a beautiful place to do our interview from, too. Uh, Once again, reminding listeners that we are sitting on what feels like the set of Masterpiece (laughs) Theater. The only thing we're missing is a fire in the fireplace. Yeah. But, um,
0: Dave, tell us, how can our listeners find out more about you and and learn more about your work? You can find me through our studio's website, darkhorserecording.com. I'm contactable there. You can find me through darkhorseinstitute.com and my email. If you have any questions, absolutely hit me up. I'd love to help people out who are trying to work through the same sort of stuff that I have worked through and I'm still working through. So Dave at darkhorserecording.com.
1: That's awesome. Thanks so much, Dave. been a, an absolute pleasure. And, uh, Thanks for having, uh, we'll having me. We'll be seeing you around the studio. Absolutely. All right, cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com/slash-review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to three three four four four. Again, that's R-S-Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.